Bin Laden existed in Afghanistan exactly 17 years before our government existed. We inherited him. And it, the fact is that such people were instigated by the CIA and by the government of America in that time to go and fight the Soviets. And such people were called the heroes of independence. And all of a sudden, they've changed now to, hero to terrorists. We don't say that we are defending terrorism, but we need to know whether they are really terrorists or not. We, we were called the puppets of America until 1998. So we don't know as to what, what to do now. We have been given no counter proposal. And now the perception in Afghanistan is that maybe the United States is always looking for a boogeyman. Because so many people have their jobs following bin Laden now. If bin Laden is not there, they will lose jobs. We'll intervene whenever we decide it's in our national security interest to intervene. And if you don't like it, lump it. The problem with America is not that we go around marauding around the world imposing ourselves. The problem with America in the last 10, 15 years since the end of the Cold War, really in the last 60 years, is that we've been too slow to get involved. I don't know how many Iraqi civilians were killed, but I can assure you that the number is the absolute uh, minimal that it's possible uh, in modern warfare. Every nation in every region now has a decision to make. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. Now, that land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. Welcome to the Darkened Hour. Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. Today we're going to be talking about the brief history of the Taliban, rise to power, their control for Afghanistan, and how bin Laden and al-Qaeda flourished under the protection and the tentative agreement to not expel bin Laden to a foreign country. Were domestic and foreign intelligence partly the problem in regards to facilitating the radical fundamentalist Diobandi and Arab Wahhabi movements in Afghanistan. We're going to be going over all that today using primary source material as usual to tell us a story and a history which gave rise to not just international terrorism, but to the 9 11 attacks which helped shape the world forever. By 1986, I would say that the CIA, the Pakistan ISI, and Osama bin Laden would build the coast tunnel complex in Afghanistan. Coast being a major city in Afghanistan, which is the provincial 
administrative seat in eastern Afghanistan. It's the largest city in the southeastern part of the country and also the largest in the region of Loya Paktia. This actually would be the major target of bombing and fighting when the United States attacked the Taliban in 2001. Now, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette dated September 23, 2001, quote, it would be reported that in June of 2001, that bin Laden worked closely with Saudi, Pakistani, and U.S. intelligence services to recruit Mujahideen from many Muslim countries, and quote, indirectly, of course. And that this information had not been reported much since the attacks of 9-11. Now, a CIA spokesman would later claim that, quote, for the record, you should know that the CIA never employed, paid, or maintained any relationship with bin Laden whatsoever, end quote. Now, I, I tend to believe that because, for one, they already had a number of Afghan warlords that they were going through the Pakistan ISI to fund and help train their armies against the Soviets, People like Gulbuddin Hekmatar and the Hizb e Islami party, Abdul Rasul Sayyaf, the Pashtun leader and commander of the Democratic Party of Afghanistan, who headed the faction, the Idihad al Islami, or the Islamic Union Party. These were the two biggest warlords in the war, in which the CIA's own program, Operation Cyclone, which spent hundreds of millions of dollars, along with Saudi money, millions and millions. And of course, later, you had Arab madrasas in the Gulf, as well as schools inside the United States that were acting as charity fronts to support the Afghan and Arab, mostly Arabs on their part, which constituted 10% of the fighting force in their fight against the Soviet Union. Now to basically gloss over the war itself, because that would take another hour or two. The Soviets withdrew from the country in 1989. The United States ended their cyclone operation and left the country to the warring bands of warlords and fundamentalists to fight against the communist-backed government of the country of Afghanistan and Bern Hamid Rabbani, who at this point was the third ethnic Tajik leader of 
Afghanistan. He would actually form the Jamiat-e-Islami Party, the Islamic Society, in which attracted students of his own. In the beginning, it was Gulbuddin Ekbatar and Ahmed Shah Massoud, but he chose to be the president of Afghanistan after the end of the former communist regime in 1992. But he was facing a problem. And that problem was Gulbuddin Ekbatar and his own war against the Northern Alliance under Ahmed Shah Massoud. This civil war led to many deaths in which invited even the warring party of the Taliban. Now, during this time also, media manipulation in the United States began to have the public support the Arab and Afghan Mujahideen in the Soviet Union. And we all saw this through Rocky III. I mean, I'm sorry, Rambo Part Two. Rambo fights with the Afghan Mujahideen against the Soviets. Psychological operations in gaining support from the American public in a war that was partly facilitated by the United States to invite the Soviets in a a Vietnam type of situation, a war that would last for years to destroy the economy and then the country. And one particular example of this would be 60 Minutes, which Dan Rather hosted and reported on what was going on inside Afghanistan when the Soviets invaded the country. Well, it sounded something like this. Little or nothing in the way of news comes out of Afghanistan. So the only way to find out what goes on there is to go in and see for yourself. That is easier said than done. You start by making contact with one of the resistance groups who move back and forth across the Pakistan-Afghanistan border. If they trust you, you sit down and talk. The group we made contact with seemed eventually to trust us. Producer Andy Lack, cameraman Mike Edwards, and soundman Peter O'Connor and they agreed to take us back with them across the border to the war they are fighting against Soviet troops and Afghan army regulars led by Soviet advisors. If the Soviets are winning the war in the cities, and they appear to be, along the southern border in the mountains, where a good half of Afghanistan's 17 million people live, the resistance fighters have the upper hand. Because an American would stand out like a beacon in those mountains, the resistance fighters disguised us as one of them. I'm standing on the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan, a border that is now closed to most everyone except refugees fleeing the Soviet invasion. These Afghan clothes I'm wearing were part of an operation to sneak me and a CBS News film crew into Afghanistan. The operation succeeded. So far as we can tell, we are the only full television crew to get inside Afghanistan in recent months. The Pakistani government refuses to let journalists cross the border, officially saying, they cannot be responsible for our safety. We were smuggled into Afghanistan by a young Mujahideen. Mujahideen, the Muslim word for freedom fighter, or fighter in a holy war. In this case, as the Mujahideen see it, 
a holy war against the Soviets. A war, they say, that if they get weapons from us or anyone else in the free world, they will win. And it began like this. But when the Soviets left the country under the mediation of Pakistan, the media ended their programming of the American public in support of a war that is finally over. But the real war, the hidden war, the war that would help facilitate the mindset of the radical fundamentalists began here. By September of 1994, through the Pakistan religious schools, the madrasas in Jalalabad, Islamabad, a group called the Taliban became prominent in trying to restore order in a country that they basically saw as a catapult to forming their own caliphate. Now, the Taliban are a movement of religious students, also known as Talibs, people from the Pashtun areas of eastern and southern Afghanistan who were educated in the traditional Pashtunwali Islamic schools. They were also people from the Tajik and Uzbek areas, students, they would later be called, that were demanding that the country of Afghanistan be governed under Islamic law. And it started as a small group headed by Mullah Omar also known as Mullah Muhammad Omar. It began as 50 students founded in the hometown of Kandahar. Omar had been studying in the Sang-e-Isisari Madrasa in the Kandahar province and saw the country of Afghanistan being torn from within and blamed the communist movement for this. And such, the Taliban began taking control of southern parts of the country. Now, throughout this, many years later, people were remarking how this small group of nomads, basically, these students, Talibs, were taking control of a country well, it's been suspected back then, but proven now that the government of Pakistan, who had repeatedly previously denied that it provided any military assistance to the, to the Taliban, but sources from MIT Press, books like Mustafa Hamid's Arabs at War, Human Rights Watch, all would state that the Pakistan's Inter-Services Intelligence Agency, also known as the ISI, supported the Taliban even as far back as 1994. And what they hoped was a new ruling power in Afghanistan favorable to Pakistan because they feared that India would take control of the turbulent country and begin 
having its own level of power because Pakistan was still fighting for control of Kashmir and Lahore, which led to a troubling predicament regarding the two nuclear powers. Now, even if the Taliban received financial support from Pakistan, say in 95 or 96, and even if Pakistani support was forthcoming from an early stage of the Taliban's movement, the, the connection is fragile from both the Pakistan ISI as well as the Taliban early on, which demonstrated their uneasy nature of the relationship between the two. And according to an article by CNN on October 5th, 1996, quote, the Taliban are widely alleged to be the creation of the Pakistan's military intelligence, ISI, which according to experts explains the Taliban's swift military successes south of the country. Now, Richard Clark, who was a counterterrorism official during the Reagan, Clinton, and Bush administrations, would later claim that not only does the ISI help to create the Taliban, but they also facilitate connections between the Taliban and al-Qaeda to help the Taliban achieve victory over the communist regime in the Rabbani government. Because in 1996, what did we see? Well, we saw Osama bin Laden and his Egyptian associates like Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri Abu Hafs al-Masri, also known as Muhammad Atef, the military commander of al-Qaeda, and Abu Ubaid al-Bashiri, the military commander of al-Qaeda, moved from the Sudan to Afghanistan in 96. Now, what led to this problem with Pakistan, if we go by, say, a Wall Street Journal report on November 15, 2001, Quote, despite their clean chins and pressed uniform, the Pakistan ISI are as deeply fundamentalist as any bearded fanatic. The ISI created the Taliban as their own instrument and still supported, end quote. Now, the Frankenstein monster sometimes comes back to bite them in the rear, just like Saudi Arabia, through the Wahhabi movement, helped to facilitate groups like Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, Abu Sayyaf in the Philippines, Jaishi Muhammad in Indonesia, Boko Haram in North Africa, people like Osama bin Laden, Abu uh, Muhammad al Makdisi, Abu Musab al Zarqawi, Abu Bakr al Baghdadi, and people of this sort and also the 9-11 operators. The ISI support of the Taliban is backed by the CIA, which a longtime regional expert with extensive CIA ties would later say that, quote, I warned them that we were creating a monster, that the Taliban are not just recruits from madrasas, but they are on the payroll of the ISI, end quote. 
Now we're seeing the problem with the Taliban in the country of Afghanistan, the Rabbani government, which are coming under fire from Masood, Hekmatar, and the Taliban, who are fighting also each other in the process for control of the country. Thousands of deaths preceded this conflict. But there was one man who was trying to fend off the radical fundamentalists, the students, the Talibs, as well as grueling warlords, nefarious people with agendas of their own right, throwing acid in the faces of women for not wearing the niqab, like Gulbuddin Ekbatar, who is CIA-backed. The one man, Ahmed Shah Massoud, in which this report states why he was fighting against the Taliban in the first place. The Taliban are narrow-minded people. They know nothing of human rights and nothing of democracy. They don't accept any rights for women. In the provinces where they have taken power, they have closed the girls' schools, closed the cinemas, and smashed television sets. They even stopped ordinary games like football and volleyball. They claim these things are not Islamic. Without any real court or hearing, they started to cut off people's hands and feet. And so began a 10-year war between the government of Afghanistan and the warlord factions. Now, in a 2004 Los Angeles Times report, they stated that some of the 9-11 Commission members, as well as US, US uh, counterterrorism officials, exclaimed that Pakistan and Saudi Arabia had cut deals with the Taliban and Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda years before the September 11 attacks. Now, this is backed by former CIA legendary case officer Robert Baer in Sleeping with the Enemy, in which he also states that this would help shield both countries from al-Qaeda attacks in the form of blackmail money. Because Saudi Arabia still had U.S. military officials and the army still stationed at the most holiest sites in all of Islam, Mecca and Medina. And that they felt that the government of Saudi Arabia needed to be expelled and taken over by the Wahhabi clerics that were engaging and enticing groups like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in the Middle East and in Afghanistan. The report went on to say, quote, Saudi Arabia provides funds and equipment to the Taliban and probably directed to bin Laden 
and doesn't interfere with Al-Qaeda's efforts to raise money, recruit and train operatives and establish cells throughout the kingdom, and that the U.S. military officials and the 9-11 Commission would say that on top of that, Pakistan provided even more direct assistance with its military and intelligence agencies, often coordinating efforts with the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, end quote. Now, with this being said, on the record, such allegations went completely unmentioned in the 9-11 Commission's final report, which only included material unanimously agreed upon by the 10 commissioners. This is not because they made the decision on their own. It is basically coming from the State Department and the Central Intelligence Agency. Like I said, the commission is not all lies. It is an incomplete narrative. There is no official narrative. It's an incomplete one. The Ahmed Rashid, who's a correspondent for the Far Eastern Economic Review of the Tele and and uh, reporter for the Daily Telegraph, he actually conducted extensive investigative research in Afghanistan after the Taliban's conquest of Kabul in '96, and he would later write in his book, which is fantastic. I I have read it, Taliban Militant Islam Oil and Fundamentalism in Central Asia. Well, Rashid saw a massive regional polarization between the United States, Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, and the Taliban on one side, and on the other side, fighting against the fundamentalists and U.S. foreign policy was Russia, Iran, and the Central Asian states, as well as the anti-Taliban alliance on the other. That's the Northern Alliance under Ahmed Shah Massoud. Now, while some focused on whether there was a revival of the old CIA-ISI connection, and that's tentative relationship at best, which began in the Afghan Jihad era, it even became more apparent to Rashid that the strategy over pipelines had really become the driving force behind Washington's interest in the Taliban, which makes a lot of sense. Oil magnates like Enron almost had a deal with the Taliban. This actually prompted a counter-reaction from Russia and Iran to fight against the radical fundamentalists. By the way, does that sound familiar? Because that's what we saw in Syria. And who's providing material support to these jihadis in Syria? Well, it was the United States, Israel, and Saudi Arabia and Turkey. Who was fighting against them? Russia and Iran. But Rashid said exploring this was like entering a labyrinth where, you know, basically nobody spoke the truth or divulged their real motives or interests. It always kept you thinking, made you believe one thing or another, but you don't know. Even like gaining access to the real players in the game was difficult, according to him, because policy was not being driven by politicians and diplomats but by the secretive oil companies and intelligence services of their specific regional states. 
And like I said, on December, you know, the Taliban conquers Kabul on September 27, 1996. And when they did that, they established control over much of Afghanistan. Rabani basically was forced to flee and operated his government in exile while they, the Taliban established the country of Afghanistan as the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Now, while this was happening, of course, the international community only recognized the Rabani government as the true leadership of Afghanistan, despite, at this point, Rabani only controlling about 10% of Afghan territory. So now this left, between the war between the Taliban and Gulbuddin Hekmatar against Ahmad Shah Massoud and the anti-Taliban forces of the Northern Alliance. Now, between during the next month in October of 96, there was a Russian arms merchant named Victor Bout. This is the same Victor Bout who actually was released in a deal with the United States. as the um, the Russians released in a prisoner exchange women's NBA player Brittany Griner. Brittany Griner had been detained by customs officers for being in possession of illegal drugs last year. Victor Bout had been selling weapons to the Afghans' Northern Lions, but by 1996, he switched sides, just like the Afghans usually do when the price is right, and began selling weapons to the Taliban and Al-Qaeda instead. And this deal, you know, began immediately when the Taliban captured Kabul and gained the upper hand in the Afghan Civil War. Now, in one trade, I'll give you one example. In one trade in October of 96, Victor Bout's company delivered at least 40 tons of Russian weapons to the Taliban, which earned him about 50 million. That's coming from a report by The Guardian on February 16, 2002. Now, two foreign intelligence services would later confirm that Victor Bout trades with the Taliban on behalf of the Pakistan government. And that Victor Bout, who was based in the United Arab Emirates, operated freely there until after the 9-11 attacks, in which the U.S. becomes aware of Bout's widespread illegal weapons trading with the Taliban, with al-Qaeda, and also illegal weapons trading in North Africa, which probably went to the hands of Boko Haram, but that they failed to take effective action against him for years. Does that sound familiar? That's almost with every other radical fundamentalist 
in the Middle East in the last 30, 40 years. We didn't do anything when we had the chance with Abu Nadal. We didn't do anything when we had a chance with Osama bin Laden. Dr. Ahmed al-Zawahiri. Now, during this time, not to forget bin Laden, but the Saudi bin Laden group in which bin Laden himself was a part owner of, would the family itself would later eliminate Osama bin Laden as a asset in the company. This came from pressure from the State Department under Bill Clinton, in which they gave sanctions to Sudan to expel bin Laden in 1996. That's why he fled to Afghanistan to begin in the first place. So where was money coming in from bin Laden? Because this was actually posed, this was posed as a question to Lawrence Wright and Gerald Posner, authors of bin Laden and close uh, reporters to Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. But bin Laden, according to a report by the Financial Times on November 28, 2001, that bin Laden established and maintained a major role in the opium drug trade. This was another reason, I think one reason, why bin Laden uh, went to Afghanistan. One, he spent tens of millions, approximately 50 million in reconstructing businesses, reconstructing the infrastructure of Sudan, and he lost all that. Now with the family eliminating him as an asset in the company of the Saudi bin Laden group, he needed money. And, you know, you had, of course, Saudi sympathizers in Saudi Arabia paying him blackmail money, but that's not enough. I mean, he has a growing Al-Qaeda operation, not just in Afghanistan, but in the Balkans, in the United States, in the Philippines, Indonesia, Southeast Asia. So he's got a lot of people to pay to help keep operations afloat. And so began a, a relationship with the drug trade. Soon after, he began operating inside Afghanistan with the approval of Mullah Omar and the Taliban. Now, one thing is for certain, that opium money was vital to keeping the Taliban in power, and as well as funding bin Laden's al-Qaeda network at the same time. Now, one report estimated that bin Laden took up to 10% of Afghanistan's drug trade by as early as 1999, which would actually give him approximately an annual income of about a billion out of six and a half to 10 billion in annual drug profits within Afghanistan. You, you had a lot of these opium warlords that were much more powerful than, say, people in the regional areas of Loya Paktia or Kandahar. And one such drug opium gang was based in Baluchistan, which is the nexus between China and Afghanistan. Now, the CIA took direct interest in bin Laden in 96 and Al-Qaeda, as well as the NSA. But by 
the CIA, they be, they sent a special CIA paramilitary team to enter Afghanistan in 1997, and that the CIA's anti-Soviet covert operations officially ended in 92. But around 97, there would actually be a push to recruit more agents capable of operating or traveling in Afghanistan. And the CIA began to recruit locals, including even some Taliban military leaders. Like I said, one thing about the Afghans is that their loyalty is maintained by the dollar, by power. The problem was, was that the CIA wanted to get close to not just the Taliban, but also to bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. But they found nobody inside Al-Qaeda that they could recruit or to act as a spy. By May of, by May of 26 of 97, however, the Saudi government becomes the very first country to extend formal recognition of the Taliban government of Afghanistan. Well, wouldn't you know it, country that helps facilitate radical fundamentalism is actually recognizing the Taliban as a government of Afghanistan. And soon right after, who joins them in? Pakistan and the United Arab Emirates. By the way, they would be the only countries that officially recognizes the Taliban. But uh, wait, there's more. Because if you think the United States really cares about women's rights or about human rights in Afghanistan, well, let me fill you in. On December 4th, 1997, representatives of the Taliban's own high Shura government were invited guests to the Texas headquarters of UNICAL to negotiate their support for a pipeline. Now, the governor of Texas at the time is none other than George W. Bush, the son of George H.W. Bush, the former president. And the Taliban appeared to agree on a $2 billion pipeline deal, but would only do the deal if the United States joined suit with Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates in recognizing the Taliban as the official government of Afghanistan. Again, I will quote from the Daily Telegraph on December 14th, 1997. Quote, The U.S. government, which in the past has branded the Taliban's policies against women and children despicable, appear anxious to please the fundamentalists to clinch the lucrative pipeline contract, end quote. Even the BBC would go on to say that the proposal to build a pipeline across Afghanistan is part of an international scramble to profit from developing the rich energy resources of the Caspian Sea. The hypocrisy of the United States is right in your face. And at the same time, beginning in 1998, you have Uzbekistan and the CIA 
would help to create a joint counter-terrorist strike force, which are totally funded and trained by the CIA, that would conduct joint covert operations against the Taliban and bin Laden. Now, little else is publicly known about how successful the operations are or how long they last, but again, it wasn't very successful because, again, the Taliban and al-Qaeda acted without impunity in the country while they're fighting against the Northern Alliance anti-Taliban forces for control of the north of the country. While this was going on, the United States is now really amping up the pressure because in August of 1998, we have the first direct attack against the United States. The August 7th, 1998 East Africa bombings in Dar es Salaam and Tens and Nairobi, Kenya. Soon after, the Taliban officials allegedly met with Prince Turki al-Faisal, the head of the Saudi intelligence, General Intelligence Directorate, to talk about the Taliban's ouster of bin Laden from Afghanistan. At the same time, the Taliban are basically putting enormous pressure on bin Laden and al-Qaeda not to do interviews with Western media, not to do interviews at all with anybody, and also not to engage in martyrdom attacks against the United States and their interests. The problem was, was that the Taliban did need the United States to invade the country in which they were trying to take control over by defeating the Northern Alliance in the process. Now, according to some reports, including documents exposed in a later lawsuit against bin Laden, at this meeting was, like I said, the head of the Saudi Arabian intelligence, Prince Turkey al-Faisal, Taliban leaders from Afghanistan and Pakistan, senior officers of the ISI, and Osama bin Laden. And according to these same reports, Saudi Arabia even agreed to give the Taliban and Pakistan several hundred millions of dollars. And in return, bin Laden promised no attacks against Saudi Arabia, not to hand them over. But no attacks against the Gulf. The Saudis also agreed to ensure that requests for the extradition of not just bin Laden, but also his high-ranking al-Qaeda members, would be blocked and promised to block demands by other countries to close down bin Laden's Afghan training camps. Now, in the past, Saudi Arabia had previously given money to the Taliban and bribed money to bin Laden. But, but this deal really up the ante, wouldn't you say? Now, according to the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, dated September 23rd, 2001, a few weeks after the meeting, Prince Turkey bin Al-Faisal sends 400 new pickup trucks 
to the Taliban. And then we soon after, $200 million would follow. Now, author Gerald Posner would give a similar account in his book, in which he was working for the Center for Cooperative Research. Um, I'm sorry, his book, Why America Slept, The Failure to Prevent 9-11. He said that U.S. government officials gave a similar account and said that al-Qaeda leader Abu Zubaydah was also at this meeting. And that reports of this meeting seemingly contradict reports of a meeting the months before Turkey and the Taliban, in which the Taliban agreed to get rid of bin Laden in June of 98. This is a little bit later. But they ran into a problem. The problem was the Taliban Shura Council in Pakistan and the Taliban Council led by Mullah Omar in Afghanistan met. And over 300 people discussed the problem of bin Laden and al-Qaeda, in which they said that the Taliban could not hand over bin Laden to Saudi Arabia or to a Western country because the Islamic Ummah, which is the world Islamic community, would deem the Taliban as munafiq fake Muslim, and handing bin Laden to a kafir, a non-believer. With the attacks against the U.S. embassies, what did the United States do in response? The United States sanctions the Taliban in Afghanistan in 98, but do they properly react? What did the Joint House inquiry have to say? Did the Taliban have a reason to believe that that we would make good on that threat, that it was a valid threat? And and likewise, what steps, when, when you formulate a policy to make that kind of a threat, what steps did you take to ensure that we, in fact, had a credi credible military force that could enforce that? Well, first of all, as I said, uh, President Clinton had ordered uh, that lethal force be used. There were armed submarines off, uh, in the Arabian Sea and uh, a variety of bombers on standby and ready to go so that the orders were there. The President also asked for a variety of options from the Pentagon. Uh, in terms of special forces, a variety of, as far as I know, there was no option off the table, and that there were questions about the Pentagon saying that these were not viable. Uh, you will have Secretary Cohen here, um, and you could ask him these questions, but I do know that from the perspective of one of the members of the Principals Committee, I.S. Uh, Secretary of State, can assure you that the President asked for a variety of military options. And so um, I, I, again, think that you have to, from my perspective, the Pentagon did not come forward with viable options in response to what the President uh, was asking for. Because they didn't take 
the proper precautions of dealing with the problem, Al-Qaeda continued to remain unscathed and determined to continue its worldwide recruiting process in which the U.S. were basically seemingly allowing to manifest. Now, you've had CIA officials from the counterterrorism division report to the leaders of the Intelligence Committee and the Pentagon called principles meetings in which they gave scenarios to kill bin Laden and al-Qaeda. All of these were rejected. On August 20th of 98, a U.S. missile strike in Afghanistan reveals connections between al-Qaeda and the ISI. Two of the four camps that were hit had strong connections to the Pakistan ISI, in which in one instance, one missile killed five ISI officers and 20 trainees were killed. This also helped to lose the element of surprise. General Joseph Ralston, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was purposely scheduled to eat dinner with General Jengahir Karamat, the Pakistan's Army Chief of Staff in Islamabad, the night of the missile strike. And at one point during the dinner, Ralston looked at his watch and announced that in 10 minutes, about 60 cruise missiles would be entering Pakistan's airspace on their way to Afghanistan. What this did was to make sure the missiles wouldn't be misidentified and shot down by the Pakistan government. But this timed ploy was even successful. Because counterterrorism czar Richard Clark claimed that he was promised by the U.S. Navy that they would fire their missiles from below the ocean surface. However, in fact, many destroyers fired their missiles from the surface. That's coming from his book Against All Enemies. In which Clark even went on to say, quote, not only did they use surface ships, they brought additional ones in because every captain wants to be able to say that they fired from the cruise missile ship, end quote. As a result of this, the ISI, which also had bin Laden sympathizers within it, had many hours to alert bin Laden for him to escape. Clark even went on to say in his own book, and once again, I'll quote, quote, if the ISI wanted to capture bin Laden or tell us where he was, they could have done so with little effort. They did not cooperate with us because the ISI saw al-Qaeda as helpful in pressuring India, particularly in Kashmir, end quote. That group of al-Qaeda was actually trained by Jalaluddin Haqqani, also a notorious warlord, who actually was the epicenter, the Haqqani network, was the epicenter of training the Egyptian leaders like Abu Abed al-Bin Shiri and Abu Hafsa al-Masri in guerrilla warfare 
in Afghanistan. One of the most important and notorious Afghan leaders, Jalaluddin Haqqani. By December 5th and 98, because of the embassy attacks, Unical announced it was withdrawing from the Central Gas Pipeline Consortium and also closed three of its four offices in Central Asia. Even, even President Clinton refused to extend diplomatic recognition to the Taliban, making business there, of course, legally problematic. And a concern that Clinton would lose support among women voters for upholding the Taliban also played a role in the cancellation. Because, as we all know, he cares about women's rights. By November of 99, the United Nations sanctions against Afghanistan would take effect. And that these sanctions actually froze Taliban assets and imposed an air embargo on Ariana Airlines, which allegedly has connections with bin Laden and Al-Qaeda, which was basically an effort to force the Taliban to hand over bin Laden. In December of 99, the CIA learns about a plot from the Jordanian government from Al-Qaeda affiliates there. Again, Richard Clark in his book Against All Enemies implemented a plan to neutralize the threat, which was approved by President Clinton, which focused on harassing and disrupting Al-Qaeda members throughout the world. The FBI and counterterrorism teams are on heightened alert. They're dispatched overseas in which formed a ultimatum to keep the Taliban and Al-Qaeda under control. And of course, there are cabinet-level meetings nearly every day dealing with terrorism. The one good thing about the Clinton administration, terrorism was a priority, unlike the Bush administration, in which it wasn't. And by early 2000, all U.S. embassies, military bases, police departments, and other agencies were given warnings to be on the lookout for an Al-Qaeda millennium attack. Ahmed Rassam is arrested on December 14, 1999, in which a border agent saw bomb-making materials in his car in British Columbia. This actually led to the unraveling of several bombing plots and no terrorist attacks occurred. That's how you work an intelligence operation where everyone works together. That didn't happen with the 9-11 attacks. According to Clark, though, the FBI was generally unhelpful. And for example, around that time, the FBI said there was no websites in the U.S. soliciting volunteers for training in Afghanistan or money for terrorist groups. But Richard Clark had a private citizen check to see if this was true. And within days, he was given a long list of such websites. And according to a Newsweek article dated March 31st, 2004, the FBI and the Justice Department 
apparently failed to do anything with the information, even when it was presented to them by Richard Clark. By July of 2000, the Taliban bans poppy growing in a response to Western pressure. Opium yields dropped dramatically in 2001 from 3,656 tons to 185 tons. Of that, 83% is from the Northern Alliance-controlled lands, not in Taliban-controlled, because they feared that the Northern Alliance, in which they were right, would use the opium trade to help them bring money to defeat the Taliban. It's the only reason why opium was banned. By January 19, 2001, UN sanctions on the Taliban don't stop, but they also exceeded their initial properties in which the sanctions limited travel by senior Taliban authorities. They also freeze bin Laden and the Taliban's assets in order to close the Alabama airlines officially all over the world. The sanctions also impose an arms embargo against the Taliban, but not the Northern Alliance. But the arms embargo had no visible effect because the sanctions failed to stop the assistance from the Pakistan ISI. So why didn't the United Nations reprimand Pakistan and the government to pressure the ISI? Again, assassination attempts against bin Laden failed. And the 9-11 Commission addressed this. Up to three occasions between December of 98 and, and mid-99, I'm, uh, I'm particularly trying to, to get a handle on who and why uh, the uh, so-called desert camp incident uh, was aborted. And, and, and what happened there, nobody seems to say, well, it was our decision. There seemed to be really good intelligence. And it, it went for a period of days, and then suddenly it was aborted. So well, anything I, you I, can I, shed. I, I right cannot on. distinguish that incident from the two or three other incidents where I would get information either from Mr. Clark or from Mr. Tennant that we had some opportunity, that we were, we were watching this very, very carefully. Stay tuned. I would get then... Uh, authorization from all of the principals and uh, put the president on alert that something might be uh, possible. Uh, in each of those cases, the director of the CIA would come back to me and say, I do not believe we have reliable enough intelligence to, to, to recommend going forward. Um, and we did discuss it, as he, as he said this morning. It was interactive. Um, but there was never a situation. There was never a situation in which we were presented. One final question. Laden was here, and we didn't take it because of civilian casualties or any other reason. The only other thing I would add is I have I've been told that a subsequent review of that of that episode suggests that Bin Laden never was there. I don't know whether that's true or not. At the time, um, we were told uh, the, the 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 assessment was.
that there was not reliable information? A disconnect between the Pentagon, the State Department, the CIA began from the mid-90s to 2000, which led to bin Laden escaping multiple assassination attempts. Nobody wanted to pull the trigger. The Taliban are getting funding from the ISI. Sanctions aren't helping. Al-Qaeda recruitment expands. By March of 2001, the Jane Intelligence Review would report that the United States is working with India, Iran, and Russia. The only time that they did work with Iran and Russia in their concerted front against the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. In the process, India was supplying the Northern Alliance with military equipment, advisors, even helicopter technicians, while the Russians were using bases in Tajikistan and Uzbekistan for their operation. But to show you the hypocrisy of the United States, by May of 2001, Secretary of State Colin Powell announced that the United States was granting $43 million in aid to the Taliban government. Why? It was purportedly to assist hungry farmers who were starving since the destruction of their opium crop occurred in January of the same year. This followed a $113 million grant given by the United States earlier that year for humanitarian aid, in which, this is actually true, even Newsday would write an air article on May 29, 2001, in which the editorial notes that the Taliban are a decidedly odd choice for an outright gift. Why were we sending these people money so much that Washington is, in effect, the biggest donor of aid to the Taliban regime? And thus, the problem continues because the United States are a bunch of hypocritical bastards. While the Clinton administration gave full attention to the problem of Arab fundamentalism, the Bush administration certainly did not. And the 9-11 Commission even showed this point in regards to Tim Romer interviewing the Deputy Defense Secretary Paul Wolfowitz over why there was more attention paid to Iraq than Al-Qaeda at a principal's meeting in April 30th of 2001. One final question. Again, Secretary Wolfowitz, this is, again, to be fair, and I want to shoot straight with you on this. We have Mr. Clark coming up tomorrow, and he has a uh, a reference in his book to a December, uh, excuse me, to an April 30th deputies meeting where he claims, and we want to know if this is accurate or not so that we can 
ask him the direct questions tomorrow. He claims that in this meeting, when they're talking about a plan to go forward to uh, go after bin Laden and Al Qaeda, that you brought up the subject of Iraq and that you said you put too much attention on Iraq as a sponsor, as a, uh, as a state sponsor of terrorism, and not enough emphasis on al-Qaeda as a transnational sponsor of terrorism. I have just two comments or two questions on that. One would be, is that fairly accurate? Is his uh, portrayal of that deputies meeting accurate at all or accurate to some degree? And secondly, in an interagency meeting, where dialogue and discussion of these things should take place, that's what the interagency process is about, isn't that where these discussions should take place? That opinions should be bounced back and forth and debate should be heated at times about the different threats to the world? Uh, thanks for giving me a chance to comment. Before I do that, let me just make a comment on the last exchange you had with Secretary Rumsfeld. Please. Uh, and it applies to quite a few comments, including Senator Gordon's question about the luxury of seven months. I think there's a basic difficulty of understanding what a plan really is. A plan is not a military option. A uh, military option is to a plan what a single play in football is to a whole game plan. Uh, and this notion that there's a single thing that if we'd only done it, it would work, is like a Hail Mary pass in football, which is what a desperate losing team does in a hope that maybe they can pull things off at the end. A plan has got to anticipate what the enemy will do next. It has to anticipate what the government of Pakistan will do. It has to anticipate what world reaction will be. It has to go down many pathways, and it's not a timetable. No one can tell you what's going to happen next. You have to be able to call plays and call audibles, and that's why to put a plan together in seven months wasn't a long period of time. Even if we had everybody on board, it was actually rather fast. And I give you as an illustration, in 2002, in January, when the president said, okay, I want to see military options for Iraq, it wasn't until nine months later, I believe, that he finally said, okay, I see that we have a military option against Iraq. And that still wasn't a plan, because that only allowed him to go to the United Nations and be prepared to use all necessary means. It wasn't a decision to use all necessary means, and General Franks's planning continued for another five or six months. So I think there's a, a, a failure to understand just how complex planning is, and we could get into this, but uh, to Senator Gordon, I, I fail to understand how anything done in 2001 in Afghanistan would have prevented 9-11. And certainly, Congressman Romer, the option you present of killing a few relatively low-level al-Qaeda in some camp in Afghanistan might have been a worthy thing to do as part of a general plan, but it certainly wasn't going to affect 9-11, well, except, oh, Paul, except as the Secretary said, to have made 9-11 look like a retaliation. So let's keep some Again, clarity. This basically just shows that the intelligence community and people like Richard Clark and later the foreign intelligence community tried to warn the United States in the year of 2001 about the growing threat 
of Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Ahmad Shah Massoud, the leader of the Northern Alliance, would warn the United States about the danger of terrorist attacks from Afghanistan He went to a embassy in France to try and plead with the international community about supporting the cause, supporting the Northern Alliance against their fight with the Taliban. Well, I guess those pleas went ignored because on September 9, 2001, Ahmed Shah Massoud was assassinated by two Al-Qaeda agents posing as Moroccan journalists in which they held a, hit a bomb inside a camera pretending to interview him. On September 10, 2001, the BBC would report, quote, with Massoud out of the way, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda would be rid of their most effective opponent and be in a stronger position to resist the American onslaught, end quote. The plan for the Al-Qaeda and bin Laden regarding the 9-11 attacks, or as they titled it, the planes operation, which allegedly took place in a meeting between Khalid Sheikh Mohammed and Osama bin Laden and the military commander of Al-Qaeda, Mohammed Eita, about the use of planes as the weapons to crash them into specific targets inside the United States for the continued support of Israel and also for their insistence on their military incursions in Iraq in 1990, as well as the freedom of Egyptian cleric, radical fundamentalist cleric, Omar Abdel Rahman, known as the Blind Sheikh. Now, according to a book by Ann Sterenson, Al Qaeda in Afghanistan, the rationale behind 9 behind 11 went as follows Quote, The strategic rationale behind 9 11 must be understood in light of Al-Qaeda's own perception of their struggle. In June 2001, bin Laden described Al-Qaeda's struggle as a three-phased process. First, to expel the Americans from the Middle East. Second, to oust the local Arab governments. Third, to establish Islamic governments in their place. In 2001, Al-Qaeda was still 
in the first phase of the struggle. The goal of this phase was to expel the Americans from the Middle East, primarily through a strategy of international terrorism. But Al-Qaeda's pre-9-11 strategy was not just designed for the short-term goal of expelling the United States from the Middle East, but before the long-term goal of ousting local Arab governments and replacing them with Islamic ones. This is why Al-Qaeda followed a dual strategy in Afghanistan, organization building and international terrorism. No matter the outcome of 9-11, Al-Qaeda needed a resilient organization in Afghanistan. If the United States collapsed after 9-11, which is what likely what bin Laden hoped for, Al-Qaeda would be ready to move to the second phase of their plan, a campaign of revolutionary violence in the Middle East. If the United States invaded Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda would continue with the first phase of the plan, but with a different military strategy that involved guerrilla warfare on Afghan soil. Afghanistan thus played a central part in Al-Qaeda's warfighting strategy prior to 9-11 as a launchpad for Islamic revolution or alternatively as a graveyard for Al-Qaeda's enemies. End quote. Bin Laden expected an invasion, but what type of invasion? What type of military response would follow? Would it be similar to the embassy attacks response, which was futile in its efforts? Or would the United States engage in a full war? Good afternoon. On my orders, the United States military has begun strikes against Al-Qaeda terrorist training camps and military installations of the Taliban regime in Afghanistan. These carefully targeted actions are designed to disrupt the use of Afghanistan as a terrorist base of operations and to attack the military capability of the Taliban regime. We are joined in this operation by our staunch friend, Great Britain. Other close friends, including Canada, Australia, Germany, and France have pledged forces as the operation unfolds. More than 40 countries in the Middle East, Africa, Europe, and across Asia have granted air transit or landing rights. Many more have shared intelligence. We are supported by the collective will of the world. More than two weeks ago, I gave Taliban leaders a series of clear and specific demands. Close terrorist training camps, hand over leaders of the Al-Qaeda network, and return all foreign nationals, including American citizens, unjustly detained in your country. None of these demands were met. And now, the Taliban will pay a price. By destroying camps and disrupting communications, we will make it more difficult for the terror network to train new recruits and coordinate their evil plans. Initially, the terrorists may burrow deeper into caves and other entrenched hiding places. Our military action is also designed to clear the way for sustained, comprehensive, and relentless operations to drive them out and bring them to justice. At the same time, the oppressed people of Afghanistan will know the generosity of America and our allies. As we strike military targets, 
We'll also drop food, medicine, and supplies to the starving and suffering men and women and children of Afghanistan. The United States of America is a friend to the Afghan people, and we are the friends of almost a billion worldwide who practice the Islamic faith. The United States of America is an enemy of those who aid terrorists and of the barbaric criminals who profane a great religion by committing murder in its name. This military action is a part of our campaign against terrorism, another front in a war that has already been joined through diplomacy, intelligence, the freezing of financial assets, and the arrests of known terrorists by law enforcement agents in 38 countries. Given the nature and reach of our enemies, we will win this conflict by the patient accumulation of successes, by meeting a series of challenges with determination and will and purpose. Today we focus on Afghanistan, but the battle is broader. Every nation has a choice to make. In this conflict, there is no neutral ground. If any government sponsors the outlaws and killers of innocence, they have become outlaws and murderers themselves, and they will take that lonely path at their own peril. I'm speaking to you today from the treaty room of the White House a place where American presidents have worked for peace. We're a peaceful nation. Yet as we have learned so suddenly and so tragically, there can be no peace in a world of sudden terror. In the face of today's new threat, the only way to pursue peace is to pursue those who threaten it. We did not ask for this mission, but we will fulfill it. I'm your host. Adam Fitzgerald of the Darkened Hour. Thank you for tuning in. Good night.